0: Good morning. All right. So today we are digging into a passage from Mark chapter 8. We're in the middle of our um, Discipleship Reimagined or Reimagining Discipleship series. And we're walking through the book of Mark as we have been even in our series before, Um, as I've mentioned before. Mark's my favorite gospel, so of course I had to preach on it like three times. Super excited. Somehow in my lottery of verses, I've managed to pick the three more challenging ones, so that's super fun, Um, and today is no exception. (laughs) So um, I'm going to go ahead and read through our passage today. Um, to get us started. So we are um, in, like I said, Mark chapter 8. I'm going to be reading verses 31 through 38, which is the last section of the chapter. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, Whoop. Okay, well, that's one way to end reading scripture, right? All right, I wanted to pull it up a bit more. I feel like I'm looking down. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, um, I thank you especially just for this worship team and how they have even in their song selection um, without any input from me, prepared us for our message today, Lord. Um, thank you for this space that you've created for all of us here, God. Um, just just be with us in this teaching um, time today, and as we respond and worship God. Um, yeah, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Are you going to fix it for me? <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> oh, yeah, you got to grab from that. You know, I used to play an instrument. I should know how to work one of these things, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as usual, I feel the need to give a little bit of context to today's text before we dig into it. It's kind of just one of the things that's becoming a habit for me as you give me one piece of scripture and I'm going to give you like three more to go with it. So apologies, but I just that's how I do it. So <laughs> And um, yeah, I think part of that is because, like, this is the Gospel of Mark, right? There's four Gospels in our Bible, and they each tell the story of Jesus in a slightly different way. And that's intentional. And I think there's a lot of meaning to be gained in looking at the structure. Um, So right now, like I said, we're in the end of chapter eight. Um, The chapter begins with the miracle of the feeding of 4,000 people with a few fish and loaves of bread. And then it ends here. And there's this overarching theme to the chapter. um, And it's especially evident in the the second half of it. So, there's three stories um, that, that happened, this being the last of them. Um, so, in verses 20 through, 22 through 26, we have an encounter between Jesus and a blind man in Bethsaida, where Jesus restores the man's sight. Then after that, in verses 27 to 30, we have this important moment for Peter and all of the disciples. And, and this is what really sets up today's passage. So I want to go over that, and I have a slide with the scripture up there for reference. So after, after restoring the sight to the blind, well, blind man, they are leaving Bethsaida and headed toward Caesarea Philippi. Um, a lot of another theme going on here in this chapter and the rest of it is Jesus is on the way. Jesus is moving. He's going to go kind of north and then head right to Jerusalem. So that is also a theme going on here. We are headed towards Jerusalem. Um, but Jesus is um, is on the way to Caesarea Philippi right now, and Jesus asks his disciples, "Who do people say that I am?" And the disciples reply, "John the Baptist." Others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. Then in this remarkable moment, Jesus asked them frankly, who do you say I am? See, what they just told him about what other people say came from like gossip and the chatter surrounding Jesus and what they're hearing. But now he wants to know what they think. The disciples, the people in Jesus's inner circle who dropped everything to follow Jesus because they knew he was someone worth following, thinking he's this rabbi or this teacher. Um, But now they've been with him for a while. They've seen a lot of crazy things and they probably have some other ideas, right? And it is Peter who steps forward and says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus commands the disciples not to tell anyone about that. And that's a point that I'll return to. So if we look at these three stories together, the the blind man and and then this story and then what I read today, um, there's this overarching narrative of or theme of from blindness into sight. We see it foreshadowed in the healing of the blind man who actually has two moments of healing in that story. Jesus touches his eyes once and he has partial yet blurry vision. Then, after Jesus touches his eyes a second time, the man has full sight. Well, that's kind of like what's happening here. (laughs) Peter makes this confession about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Messiah. But that is only a partial truth revealed. Then in today's passage, Jesus does something that he hasn't really done yet. He speaks to them plainly, not in parables. And he offers them the full truth of what is to come. Okay, so let's dig into today's scripture, breaking it down. Okay, so in verse 34, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. The sequence of the verbs here, must suffer, be rejected, be killed, And rise again, basically outlines the events of chapters 14 through 16. Jesus tells them what is going to happen to him very soon. So now the disciples have the full picture, not just of who Jesus is, but what that means. They have moved from blindness into sight. Let's talk for a second about this term, son of man, that Jesus used here. Because Peter just called him the Christ, but now Jesus is teaching about the Son of Man. Uh, what's that about? So, Son of Man is a term that only Jesus uses to talk about himself in Mark's Gospel, and um, it's actually referencing a pros- prophecy from the book of Daniel um, that in Jewish thought is believed to be about the Messiah. So, he's, they're talking about the same thing, just using different language. Um And um, in that prophecy it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this prophecy gives us a picture of what Peter and the disciples might have had in mind when Jesus talks about himself as the son of man. Now, recall that right after Peter answers Jesus' questions about who the disciples say Jesus is, when he makes that claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus commands them to secrecy. About it. And in that verse, it says, and he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Mark is known for what what contemporary scholars have called this messianic secret. It's one of the things I love about Mark. It's fun. It's a unique feature of his gospel that even though it seems clear from the beginning that Jesus is the Messiah. Whenever a character in the story names this, whether it's Peter or a demon encountering Jesus, Jesus commands them to secrecy. Jesus's identity as the Messiah is something he wants kept from spreading. Why? Well, because that identity carried with it a particular set of expectations. The prophecy from Daniel is a clear example. The Messiah that the Jewish people are expecting is one with the authority of God who will bring together a kingdom. And in their minds, this is a restored kingship for Israel. And there are two problems with this for Jesus. First, there's the whole issue of Roman occupation. The Jewish people at this time um, are, are under the authority of Rome. And the emperor of Rome is both king and deity to the Romans the jewish people are able to maintain their religion and their kind of appointed rulers but with the ultimate governance and authority of the roman emperor these prophecies about the messiah about someone who might release israel from its current captors by overthrowing their rule was a dangerous thing for jesus to associate with it with so this command to secrecy about his identity makes sense in that context. But also there's the problem of expectations versus reality. There are clear expectations about the Messiah that the followers of Jesus have that are tied to centuries of prophecy and hope for the Jewish people. And then there's the reality, which Jesus spells out plainly in verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer be rejected, and be killed. And it is to this that Peter steps forward against to speak boldly. But his words, as we see, are not well received. In verse 32, it says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus responds rather harshly to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Which, if you're keeping track, this far in Mark, In January, I preached on um, the temptation of Jesus by Satan, and then a demon story, and now this is just following me everywhere, and I didn't do that on purpose. Super fun. Anyway, (laughs) get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. These words seem rather harsh. Like, I read that, and every time I'm just kind of like, ooh. But I think there's a reason Jesus comes back at Peter in such a way. So going back to that temptation narrative, um, Mark writes that Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert. This is right after his baptism. He goes out into the wilderness and spends 40 days, and it just says being tempted by Satan. And it doesn't really tell us what those temptations involved. But I think Jesus' response to Peter here gives us a clue. (laughs) Peter accepts that Jesus is the Messiah, but this talk of suffering and rejection and death doesn't fit in the idea of what he thinks that means. It's a tough pill to swallow, this fate of the Son of Man that Jesus has laid out for them. And perhaps this is also something that Jesus struggled to accept. And it could have been the temptation that Satan gave him while he was out there, the temptation to avoid his fate of suffering and death. If so, this immediate rejection of Peter and calling him Satan makes a lot of sense. But there's also this role reversal happening here that I think Jesus is quick to correct. Peter, the disciple, rather than receive this teaching from Jesus, Attempts to impose his own teaching onto Jesus, right? His own beliefs about what the Messiah will do. The student tries to become the teacher, as it were. And immediately, he gets put back in his place. So, Jesus' command to get behind me is also a return to the proper order of the relationship. And we, in becoming disciples of Jesus, must also remember this ordering. Jesus says to Peter, You are not setting your eyes on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that happened the moment Peter chose to put himself in front of Jesus by pulling him aside and telling Jesus what he thinks is right. So Jesus says, Get behind me and reminds Peter what it means to be a disciple. Following Jesus means keeping behind him. Because when Jesus is in front of us, we will have our eyes fixed on the things of God. So the flow of the text has moved from who is Jesus, which we get in that story right before this, through what does being Christ mean, which we just talked about, And now it turns to, what does being a disciple mean? And the audience for this also shifts. So in verse 34, um, Jesus, it says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That last phrase, follow me, takes us back to the initial invitation of the disciples. Come. Come follow me. But that invitation is now expanded to include the crowd and indeed to include anyone. But along with that open invitation, Jesus also gives a clearer picture of what following him will entail, denial of self and taking up one's cross. Now, denial of self is not the same as denying yourself something. It is not asceticism or self-discipline. Denial of self is the reordering of ourselves, such that who we are is defined by knowing Jesus. Basically, I learn who I am by discovering who Jesus is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German pastor and theologian, um, really cool guy, he was arrested and ultimately killed for standing against Hitler and the Nazi party. Um, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote, and he was referencing this this passage we just talked about, he wrote, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ, no more of self. To see only him who goes before, and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him. Denying oneself is not a singular action that we just do once, but a process. It happens daily with each step that we take as we follow after Jesus. As we tune our attention to what Jesus says and turn our hearts toward him, our own selves diminish in importance. Or as John puts it in his gospel, he must become greater, I must become less. This is what it means to deny oneself. But Jesus says even more about what it means to be a disciple that goes beyond denial of self. He says, take up your cross and follow me. So for the first century inhabitant of the Roman Empire, this has a clear image. Taking up one's cross would call to mind a condemned person carrying their own cross to the place of execution. And indeed, that's what's in Jesus' future. He basically just spelled out to the disciples what is going to happen to him and then invites them to follow me. And all of the disciples are probably thinking, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> but remember, that invitation is now open, and Jesus' words are aimed not just at the disciples here. Jesus addresses the crowd as well. But it goes beyond that beyond the characters in the story that are with Jesus in this moment. It's so important to remember when reading scripture that all of these texts were written for a community, for a group of people existing in a particular place and time. For Mark's gospel, the audience was first century Christians. This is um, the very early days of the church after Jesus has died. Um, Mark's actually the, first go- the earliest gospel we have Um, It's not a great time to be a Christian or to claim the name of Jesus. Um, The Roman Empire saw the emerging faith as a threat, and um, claiming the name of Jesus uh, can mean more than just a crucifixion. In fact, it can mean being thrown into an arena with deadly animals and being mauled to death, as an example. these were the people to whom mark is writing this gospel with the hope in his in his writing he has the hope that it will help them stay strong in their faith in the face of such terrible persecution so i think there's a dual meaning in jesus's words here there's a message to the disciples and to those in jesus that are with jesus in the moment the crowd Um, and that message is that he's headed toward the cross, and that is where following him will lead. And then there's a message to the early church who will face great suffering and persecution for their faith. And I think it's really toward that latter group that this last section of scripture is directed. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes to the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's a great promise here for the life and glory to come for those who choose Jesus even in the face of suffering and death. It's a message of hope and perseverance that would have really (laughs) meant something to that first century audience. But what about us? What about 21st century Americans living without the threat of persecution when we claim the name of Jesus? For us, I believe, these words of Jesus still ring true. See, Jesus gets to a fundamental truth of human existence in this passage. A person can never possess their own life. No one can obtain a price that would buy one's life as a secure possession. As we were reminded this week on Ash Wednesday, we are all mortal. But our culture tells us to fight against that reality with everything that we have. And the messaging we are surrounded with is one of self actualization and autonomy and seizing one's own life. But trying to hold on to your life is like trying to hold water in your hands. And I believe that Jesus is inviting us to let go of that struggle. See, we're in the season of Lent right now, we are working towards the cross, and it's a long season. We look forward to Easter Sunday, and we long for that happy ending. But discipleship is a journey. It's a journey with Jesus, who lays out plainly where he is going and invites us to take up our cross and follow. If you're newer to church and and to the faith, that invitation may not sound like something you want. To join in on. And I confess that even working through this passage to preach this week was challenging. But remember, the promise here is not death, but life. As we follow Jesus, putting ourselves behind him so that our eyes are fixed on him and on the things of God, as we make ourselves less and him more, as we open our hands and surrender our very selves. The promise here is that we will find true life. Jesus says in John's gospel, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. We're going to turn now to a time of communion. Um, And this is where we celebrate um, the Lord's Supper. This is a table of life, where Jesus has laid out his plans for our salvation, that through his broken body and poured out blood, he would enter into suffering and death and redeem it into life. And he calls us to follow him into that suffering and death, that through him we may have life abundant. So I invite you, as you're responding to this word, to come forward and to partake of the bread, um, you'll come forward and just take a chunk of Jesus' body and remember his suffering. And you'll dip it into the cup, representing Jesus' blood, and remember that he died for you. And know that these things so are, were so that you would have life and have it abundant. As you come, you're going to go down the aisle on this side. And we've got Joel over here and Elena. Um, There's a gluten-free option if you need it as well. Come receive um, communion and come back this way. I'm terrible with directions. Every time I do this, I feel real awkward. (laughs) Come back to your seat. Thanks. All right, before we do that, let me pray. Dear God... We thank you that you came for life and life abundantly. When so much of life feels like death and death is all around us, Lord, we thank you that you came to offer us something else and that it's hard sometimes to know what we might be facing. But when we surrender ourselves to you, God, and we have our eyes fixed on you, we realize what we gain and what we find in that, God. So, in the season of Lent, in the season of walking towards the cross, Lord, let us not be afraid, but let us follow you. You lead the way, God. Amen.